Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Que passe, mes amigos? Shalom, namaste. Wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa. Wendell's World in Sports. With yours truly, Wendell Wallace is the most thought-provoking, entertaining podcast, sports talk podcast that you can listen to. I talk about the NFL. I talk about college football. I talk about the NBA. I talk about college basketball. I talk about the loves of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas. I talk about UFC, MMA, AEW, WWE, and sometimes I just might go ahead and talk about what else is happening in the world. Wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, download, subscribe, rate, review, and enjoy. The man who brings it with the plan, Wendell's World in Sports. Download, rate, review, and enjoy anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Groin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. K-pop to me, amigos, me, I'm a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So doggone glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Good morning, good abend, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, namaste, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. I hope everybody had a very Merry Christmas. I hope everybody had a very happy holiday. I hope everybody had a safe holiday season. I hope everybody is going to be safe as we reach the end of 2021. For some folks, it's going to be, oh, for some folks, it's going to be, hey, but whatever side that you fall on, man, make sure that you bring in 2022, first of all, alive. And second of all, doing things the right way, doing things correctly, making sure that once again, you are doing everything humanly possible to make sure that you move this world, you move this society in a better place through peace, love, unity, understanding, listening, learning, educating. Shut up. Learn and listen from those of a different gender, those of a different race, those of a different political background, those of a different uh, financial background, those who have different privileges, those who are from a different part of the world, those who worship another God, those who might love someone different. Make sure that you learn as much as you can. So in this world that we live in right now, which is full of ignorance, which is full of racism, which is full of divisiveness, which is full of ignorance and selfishness, that hopefully, possibly 2022 can be the year that we start moving this society for our children's sake and their children and their children in a world where, you know what, man, 50, 60, 80 years from now, when 10th graders, 11th graders, 9th graders are sitting in their U.S. government and world history classroom and reading their history books, they can take a look at the year 2018 and 2019 and 2020 and 2021 and say, man, during that time period, during that generation, you're going to try to tell me that gay people and lesbian people were actually, well, same thing, are you going to try to tell me that gay people 
people were actually discriminated against because who they love. You're going to try to tell me that Hispanics and black folks were were discriminated and oppressed and thought of less than because of the color of their skin and the stereotypes that went with it. Are you going to try to tell me that in the year 2020, when the COVID-19 virus came out, that there were folks ignorant enough in this country that we live in right now to believe that Asian Americans actually had something to do with it in terms of causing the shutdown and causing this pandemic, that people in this country of all races and genders and such were so stupid that they actually believed that Asians were the cause of the COVID virus, Asians that were living in this country or living all over the world. Really? During that time, people were that stupid? Woo! Kind of like the way we take a look at, we're going to try to tell me that people had other people enslaved, picking cotton and doing those type of things just because of the color of their skin. Yikes. Yeah, the same thing, the same attitude that the younger folks have about what went down 100 years ago in this country. I want those people 100 years from now to have the same type of attitude and same type of bewilderment when we speak about the way that uh, black folks, brown folks, poor folks, women, gay folks are treated in this country currently. How do we do that? We start again by listening and learning and then passing on those lessons to the younger generation so they could take those lessons and live in a society which is based on who you are as a person, content of character, not by anything else. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, man. Let's go ahead and speak about what's happening in the NFL, man. Week 15 is over. The storyline from the week. I'm going to just start off with this. Joe Burrow, Cincinnati Bengals quarterback, Joe Burrow. He needs to be, y'all need to stop disrespecting him. And when I say y'all, I'm not talking about you in particular. I'm just talking about those who make their living, those who make seven figures a year, kind of speaking about uh, Joe Burrow in a disrespectful way. Not everybody, not everybody, but there's enough to where it's kind of like, wait a minute, man. And no one's up here for the most part saying Joe Burrow sucks or Joe Burrow was a bust or Tua Tungavailoa should have been drafted ahead of Joe Burrow. I'm not talking about that type of disrespect. I'm talking about, man, when we start speaking about the future quarterbacks, when we start speaking about, hey, man, who's going to be that quarterback? Who are going to be those quarterbacks when Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger, when all those guys, when the last remnants of that other generation finally retire, and the way Tom Brady is going, he might play until he's 60. But let's just say for the sake of this argument, that these guys are going to be out in another two to five years, somewhere around there. Roethlisberger is going to be out way before then, of course. We're thinking about two games for Roethlisberger. But when you're speaking about when you're speaking about Brady and you're speaking about uh, Rodgers and such, the last remnants of that Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, Philip Rivers, uh, who else was there? Ben Roethlisberger, those quarterbacks, the Hall of Fame quarterbacks, the borderline Hall of Fame quarterbacks, the Super Bowl champions, the quarterbacks of a few years ago, about five, ten years ago, that were the faces of the league. When those quarterbacks finally retire and we're going to take a look at who's going to take their place and it's not going to be Matthew Stafford, it's not going to be Russell Wilson, it's not going to be someone right now who's in their lower to mid-30s, it's not going to be Kirk Cousins, it's not going to be that group, which ones of the younger generation of quarterbacks that we're speaking about those now, those might have been, those quarterbacks who might have been drafted in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021 and such, maybe moving up to 2022, 23, 24, in the year 2026, in the year 2027, in the year 2028 and beyond, 
which one of these quarterbacks are you going, are you going to say this guy is elite? This guy is a no doubt Hall of Famer. This guy is the best quarterback in the league. This guy is going to be the face of the league. This guy is going to be on the commercials. This guy is going to be the quarterback, the transcendent star or public figure that folks who don't even follow the NFL might uh, recognize. Might not know his stats. Might not know. Might not know how good he is, but because of television appearances, because of crossover uh, uh, exposure in that sense, in that uh, commercials and such, which non-football fan is going to take a look at and say, oh yeah, I know that guy. He might not know anybody else. She might not know anybody else, but you'll know that guy. We've been hearing a lot of Justin Herbert. We've been hearing a lot of uh, Peyton Manning. Not Peyton Man. We've heard a lot of Patrick Mahomes. We heard a lot of that. Man, you better very quickly put Joe Burrow in that conversation when we're speaking about who is going to be that guy that is going to be the face of the league in the year 2028, 2029, 2032, along with such quarterbacks as Patrick Mahomes and such and Josh Allen and such. You know, the, the, the next great quarterbacks. Drew Brees retired. Eli Peyton Manning retired. Phillip Rivers retired. Soon to be retired Ben Roethlisberger. Near the end of their Hall of Fame quarterback future of their generations, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. When are they going to go or when they finally do go? Take a look at the current quarterbacks as of right now. The candidates or the possibilities of these players, of these quarterbacks to take their place. Current quarterbacks over the age of 30, you've got Matthew Stafford, who's 34. You've got Matt Ryan, who's 36. You've got Russell Wilson, who's going to be 33. You've got Ryan Tannehill, the Tennessee uh, Titans quarterback. He's 33. Kirk Cousins, Minnesota. He's 34. Derek Carr, Las Vegas Raiders. He's 30. Jimmy Garoppolo. He's somewhere around 30. Then the next generation of starting quarterbacks after that. Then we move down to Carson Wentz, who's opportunity to play this upcoming week is in jeopardy because of COVID-19 but Carson Wentz is 28 years old. Dak Prescott of America's team, the Dallas Cowboys he's 28 years old. Teddy Bridgewater bounce around starting quarterback until you get the next generation great quarterback, franchise quarterback you hope for, roaring to go he's 29. Jared Goff just recently traded from the LA Rams to the Detroit Lions after being part of a Super Bowl contending team a few years ago he's um how old is he he's 27 so you know and then you have the generation after that when you're speaking about who's going to be this guy and when i'm so adamant about saying man y'all better put joe burrow in there rather quickly demon all of these quarterbacks so far tell me someone some tell me the quarterback where you're going to put in front of or, or if you take a look at their potential in the next couple of years, when you're taking a look, who's going to be the guy that's going to take the torch from Tom Brady, from Aaron Rodgers, from Ben Roethlisberger? Who are going to be those quarterbacks? It can only be a few. You can't have 15 faces of the franchise quarterbacks, or you can't have 15 faces of the league quarterbacks. That doesn't work like that. You can only have a couple. There's only so many commercials going along for State Farm or for Johnson & Johnson or for oh, I don't know, Arby's or for Mickey D's and other fast food places and other restaurants and other tire shops and other insurance uh, companies. There's only so many quarterbacks that can go around. Papa John's, I don't know how many sponsors the NFL has. I don't know what their partnership is in terms of the sponsors for the NFL, but you can only have so many 
faces of the league at quarterback representing them. You know what I'm saying? To where you can't have 14 or 15 of the quarterbacks being quote-unquote faces of the league. Very special. Very few. In the NBA, there are very few LeBrons. There are not even someone as great as a KD. Not even someone that that level of greatness. Where Kevin Durant's going to go down as one of the greatest players of all time when everything is said uh, is all said and done. And as of right now, a generational great. Not even KD has the overwhelming aura or the overwhelming presence that someone like a LeBron or a Steph Curry has. That's the only two guys in the NBA who I can think of who, you know what, passed the Marie Wallace test. What is the Marie Wallace test? Marie Wallace is my mom who doesn't watch any type of sports, could give a damn about football, could give a damn about the Super Bowl, doesn't care at all. If all of a sudden sports went away, if all of a sudden the NFL, the NBA, college sports, the, N, uh, the Major League Baseball, if all of those sports just went, just completely disappeared, my mom would have no flipping idea because she does not care. She would rather watch those cornball movies on Lifetime than to watch the uh, Super Bowl. She would rather read a book and chill and fall asleep than watch the Super Bowl or watch Tom Brady play. She doesn't know anything about those guys except for a very very, very, very minute few. She knows LeBron James. She doesn't know how good he is. She doesn't know what team he played for. She doesn't, she knows who Michael Jordan is. She realizes that he doesn't play basketball anymore, but she doesn't remember that, she, that he played for the, she played for the, uh, he played for the Chicago Bulls and she doesn't care. So I'm talking about which one of these players is going to pass the Marie Wallace test in terms of yeah, because of the exposure that he has in his sport and the crossover appeal that he had to the sport and the generational impact that he has in his sport. Yeah, I've heard of the guy. I might know the guy. I don't know how great he is. I'm not interested in seeing him play, but I know who he is. Which one of these quarterbacks is that going to be? And I've been naming them off in some of the current quarterbacks that are participating in the NFL right now who are employed by their team as quarterbacks, starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Taking a look at their age, Matthew Stafford, age 34, too late. Matt Ryan, who a couple of years ago was the NFL MVP, too late. Russell Wilson, age 33, a guy who many people thought could be that guy, 33. What Seattle's doing right now, a little bit of tarnish was put on his, was put on his chief. In the offseason, he was speaking about, yeah, you know, I'm not really looking to be traded, but if I was, here are the teams that I want to go to. So that was kind of, eh. In the Pacific Northwest, eh. You know, that's uh, that's all hindrances in terms of Russell Wilson being that guy moving forward along with his age, being 33, even though he said that he wants to play competitive, high-level football until he's 45. Good luck. Drew Brees said the same thing, right? What's Drew Brees doing right now? Thank you. Ryan Tannehill, 33. Kurt Cousins, 34. Derek Carr, 30. Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, if you want to continue to date um, MILFs like Kia Marie, um, I would be much, if I'm Jimmy Garoppolo, that would much more be my path to hey, hey now than being on some uh, commercial and, you know, being the face of the league and all that type of stuff. I can continue to bang porn stars who look awesome. Hey, you know what? Ain't nothing wrong with that. Ain't mad at you at all with that one, Jimmy G. But, uh, as of right now, his game doesn't equate to him being that crossover public superstar. Next generation of quarterbacks, starting quarterbacks. Dak Prescott, again, he's been on a couple of commercials. Here's a guy who's under the age of 30, albeit being 28 years old. Here's a guy who's starting to come 
truly into the prime of his career. How long does that prime last? If you're speaking about the generations now and going forward, their prime lasts longer because of nutrition, because of the year-round detail and the, and the year-round maintenance that they keep to their game and their bodies and such. Even speaking about football, Dak Prescott coming off a serious injury, serious injury last season, which made him miss a lot of the 2020 season. But Dak Prescott at 28 years old, you would think that he has the opportunity to have another 7 to 11 really prime years left in terms of him being an elite quarterback possibility being the face of a league good looking strong cat with uh good personality with leadership qualities well spoken he's been in those of uh, soup commercials so he's already you know dabbled in that uh, venture so you know playing for america's team and such he's going to have those opportunities is he going to be that guy moving forward don't know we'll see teddy bridgewater 29 jared goff 27 or let me just run that back so I can still connect to the point I'm trying to make with Joe Burrow. Moving forward now for the 2025-26 season, who would you think, who would you consider, who would you choose, who would you rather have if you're an NFL or even be an NFL fan as far as being the face of the league? If you were to guess who had a better chance of being the next Tom Brady or being the next, well, Tom Brady really hasn't done any commercials for the most part, but being that Peyton Manning guy who was on every doggone commercial, it seemed like when Peyton Manning was in his prime with the Colts, man, it seemed like when you were watching an NFL game, every other commercial, you had Peyton Manning. Now, Peyton Manning was awesome doing those commercials, very funny, very charismatic, very unique in the way that he presented himself in those commercials, but what I'm saying is, who is going to be that guy? Who's going to be, who's going to pass the Marie Wallace test, in your opinion, four or five, six years from now? Is it going to be Dak Prescott? Or it's going to be Joe Burrow. Many people, when speaking about that, many people, when talking about that, many people, when pontificating about that, would go with Dak Prescott. Been in the league longer, played for the Cowboys. I'm saying as far as the disrespect is concerned, man, you better think long and hard in terms of, you know what, Joe Burrow has just as good as an opportunity to be that guy along with Des along with Dak Prescott or more in demand than Dak Prescott when the next generation comes swooping in and taking control of the NFL. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us just taking a look at some of these quarterbacks now. So after the Wentz and Dak Prescott and Teddy Bridgewater and Jared Goff, generation of quarterbacks coming after Stafford, Ryan, Wilson, Tannehill, Cousins, Carr, and Garoppolo, then you start taking a look at some of these recent NFL drafts. And you go to 2018, and you've got Baker Mayfield, you've got Sam Darnold, you've got Josh Allen, you've got Josh Rosen, who I don't even think he's in the league anymore. If he's in the league, then he's on some practice squad. But Mayfield was the number one pick in that NFL draft in 2018. Sam Darnold was number three, who's right now hanging on a thread in terms of his NFL career, even though at the age of 24, Mayfield at 26, Darnold is 24. I think for the next couple of years, Darnold can be a backup quarterback, so I don't think he's in jeopardy of being Rosen. Josh Rosen, Rosen, who was the number 10 pick. Remember that guy out of LSU who was speaking about how cool he was because he had a hot tub in his uh, dorm room at UCLA? He was the number 10 pick out of UCLA. I don't think, again, he's anywhere near 
being a valuable NFL prospect. Josh Allen, the number seven pick out of Wyoming. He's 25 years old. Lamar Jackson, the number 32 pick, Heisman Trophy winner out of Louisville. He was the number 32 pick in the draft. So out of these out of these quarterbacks that we see right here, Mayfield, Darnold, Allen, Rosen, Jackson of that class, okay, we can make the argument that Allen and Jackson are the two players that superseded everyone else in terms of being the most impactful, the most productive quarterback in that class. But who do we see on Hulu? Who do we see at home with Baker Mayfield? Who's getting the most endorsement deals? Baker Mayfield. Interesting. Moving forward, is there any chance that guy can parlay the groundwork that he's laid down in terms of people seeing him on television to being being the quarterback of a historic franchise like the Cleveland Browns and having the storyline of being a quarterback with the Cleveland Browns in terms of one of the most fantastic, historic, strong fan bases in sports, regardless of the sport, when you're speaking about the Cleveland Browns and the frustration that they felt and the losing that had been uh, thrust upon them for decades, can Baker Mayfield be that guy to lead them to the promised land in terms of Cleveland being a viable Super Bowl contender for five or six years and then parlaying that success with the foundation that he's already set with some of the commercials that he's made and some of the commercials that he's known for at the Heisman house and such, parlay that to him being the guy that could be the next Peyton Manning, him being the guy that could be the next crossover superstar, him being the guy that could be that public figure that many sports fans, not sports fans don't know about the way he's playing right now. No, <laughs> no way. I mean, commercials. Yes. Ability to move the needle on the field and get him even more exposure. No, so Josh Allen's out there in Buffalo. Lamar Jackson is in Baltimore. I think Lamar Jackson is a charismatic guy, but I think Lamar Jackson might fit a certain niche and maybe not have the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? He might not have the uh, commercial appeal that many ignorant, closed-minded folks might be looking for. So when you're speaking about that, the 2019 NFL Draft, Kyler Murray's 24, Daniel Jones is the bust in 24, so let's not talk about him. Dwayne Haskins with a number 15 pick by the Washington Snyderskins, who on draft day said, the league done messed up now. Yes, the league did done messed up. Or the Washington football team, they did done messed up. They shouldn't have drafted your ass. They shouldn't have drafted your ass in the first round, the second round, the third round, fifth round, sixth round, seventh round. Apple pie in the NFL. I don't give a damn if there were 214 drafts, if there were uh, 754 rounds in the NFL draft. Dwayne Haskins, that immature clown, should not have been drafted at all. So you're right, Dwayne. That's the only thing you got right in your NFL career. They done messed up. They done messed up by bringing in your sorry ass and trying to make you the starting quarterback. So when you take a look at this draft class now, 2020, Joe Burrow, as I mentioned before, 25 years old, good-looking kid, well-spoken, good qualities, 
doesn't have a bad boy bone in him in terms of what I see from the outside looking in. Hasn't never been pulled over for any type of stupidity. No rumors coming out while he was in college about him being an asshole or him being a jerk or him treating women like biatches or him getting drunk and getting in fights or him being a jerk or him being disrespectful to his uh, elders or to his professors. Never him playing the big boy card. I'm Joe Burrow and you're not, so get the fuck out of my way. There hasn't been, as far as I know, there hasn't been any type of commotion. There hasn't been any type of scuttlebutt. There hasn't been any type of uh, discussion concerning Joe Burrow in that regard. Don't know, don't know, don't know when we're speaking about future quarterbacks in terms of them being the faces of the league. Don't know why I don't see Joe Burrow as much as I see Baker Mayfield. I don't know why I haven't seen more. Expo- now, maybe it's a situation where Joe Burrow is like, nah, man, I'm good. I'm quite sure that there are some endorsement deals. I'm quite sure there's some commercial opportunities and others situations to um, amplify who I am and this, that, and the other. But as of right now, I'm cool. I'm going to take the Tom Brady route. I'm just going to, you know, in my early years, focus on being the best football player I can be and being the best uh, teammate that I can be. Not saying that uh, Baker Mayfield or Peyton Manning weren't also uh, doing that, but um, I'm just thinking that, you know what, Joe Burrow is that guy that might say, yeah, you know what, those opportunities might come my way, but I don't want anything to take away from my opportunity, my progression in terms of building that foundation for me to be that quarterback that can be winning Super Bowls, that can be winning MVP while winning Super Bowls. We got a really good thing right now in Cincinnati. I just want to focus mainly on that. And maybe he's just, maybe he's just had that personality where it's like, look, man, I'm just really not interested in, I mean, being a superstar in that realm just really doesn't interest me. I'm making enough money where I'm cool. You know, if I play really good football, believe me, I'm going to have more than enough money for my great, 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 great grandchildren to be living nice by. So I don't need to be running out and having 15 endorsement deals and be on commercials every other time. That's just not me. Don't want to do it. Not comfortable doing it. Doesn't make him a bad person. Doesn't make him a bad leader. It's just who he is. That's cool. But I'm, I'm just saying, I mean, you know, Mike Trout's the same way. Mike Trout is what? making what damn near a half a billion dollars or some shit like that. And he hadn't been on a commercial day one. He doesn't do any interviews at all. He's doing quite fine. I don't think this off season you're going to see Mike Trout working a second job to pay the bills. So yeah, man, he's got that generational wealth. Maybe Joe Burrow is also that kind of guy, but I think Joe Burrow also is an assassin. I also think Joe Burrow plays with a chip on his shoulder. I, I think Joe Burrow is the, Hey, man, don't let the nice guy fool you. Don't take my kindness for weakness. Ask Wink Martindale, the D.C. for the Baltimore Ravens, the defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens, who made a very innocuous comment, and it was true, where he said, hey, he's a good quarterback. He's a really good quarterback. Well, let's not put a gold jacket on him just yet. That's true. That's that's, that's true. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. He didn't say, ah, Joe Burrow sucks. I don't know why you guys are treating him like he's the second coming. He didn't say anything like that. He made a very valid point. He made a very, he made an excellent point. We shouldn't be all of a sudden putting the expectations on Joe Burrow to be that guy. Joe Burrow not yet is at the level of a Aaron Rodgers, at the level of a Tom Brady. That's fine. Guess what? Those guys have been playing. Tom Brady's been playing football in the NFL at a high level for over 20 years. He had the privilege. He had the honor. He had the advantage 
of learning the game from Bill Belichick. <laughs> okay. He's kind of gotten a pretty head, pretty far head start to be all of a sudden now saying, Joe Burrow, after a season and a half, let's start giving him the same expectations that we give someone like a Tom Brady at 44 years old and being in this league over 20 years. Or with Aaron Rodgers, who has arm talent that's out the wazoo and has been in the league for 17 years and actually had the opportunity for three of those years to learn how to play the position and learn how to be a professional quarterback who wasn't asked to, God, please save the save the uh, organization. He wasn't one of those guys. Aaron Rodgers had the luxury of not having that responsibility. So, man, Joe Burrow at 25 is doing really well, really fine. And, again, it just kind of befuddles me and bewilders me why we're not speaking about Joe Burrow more and more and more and more and more. Hell, when we speak about the next coming, when we speak about the next faces of the league for the 2027 NFL season, man, we bring up Trevor Lawrence. We bring up, we bring up, uh, 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 Zach Wilson, we bring up Kyler Murray, we bring up uh, Josh Allen, we bring up Lamar Jackson, we bring up all those guys and all those guys do have that potential but man, let's stop sleeping on let's stop sleeping on Joe Burrow and put him in there right now in terms of guys who guess what man, Cincinnati hit the jackpot Cincinnati, they hit mega bucks man some people, I guess, what if you get like uh, I don't, I don't, I've never played the lottery, but you know, what's this deal where if you um, five numbers and if you get three of them right, you get a certain amount of money. If you get two of them right, plus the bonus, plus the bonus deal, you get a certain amount of money, right? Let me tell you something. With Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals, man, they hit mega bucks. They hit mega bucks with that quarterback and the way this man is progressing. Hey, look, him and Dak Prescott should be the front runners for comeback players of the year. If you remember, Joe Burrow had a serious injury against the Washington football team in week 10, which caused him to miss the rest of the season. So, yeah, there should be a situation where Joe Burrow is that guy who, again, should be the trajectory of his career is skyrocketing. And we should be taking note of that. And as we're gushing over Justin Herbert, rightfully so, and we're speaking about, you know, the potential and the generation potential and talent that a Trevor Lawrence has, rightfully so, once he gets Byron Leftwich as their head coach and they can move in a positive, better direction, see if Leftwich can save that man's career from the dysfunction which was his first year in Jacksonville. That, yeah, we should be there. Yeah, we should be getting in there. But let me tell you something, man. When we're speaking about the next generation of superstars, the 2024 season to around like a, what, 30, 20, 37, 20, 38 season, somewhere around there, the men that we should be talking about as running this game, running this league, as far as their importance, as far as their impact, on and off the field, the success that they have in the with the team, the 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 next role models, the next great quarterback who says this is the person that I want to. Uh, when I was growing up, I was a huge fan and had my post, I had my wall filled with this guy's poster. Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Kyler Murray, 
Trevor Lawrence, and right there, Joe Burrow. 525 yards against the Baltimore Ravens, which, uh, which was the fourth, uh, fourth highest in uh, NFL history. Completed 36 to 47, four touchdown passes, no interceptions. Woo! QB rating of 143.2. Had 299 yards passing in the first half at the Bengals left 31-14. And you're speaking about not letting up on the gas. Talking about being aggressive on offense for the entire game. That was Cincinnati, man. In the first half, they threw the ball 21 times. Ran it 11 times. Then in the second half, they really said, fuck it. Threw it 25 times and ran it just 10, including a game-ending kneel. So you can really say they threw the ball 25 times and ran it just just nine times. At one point in the game, one point in the game, they called 15 consecutive passing plays despite a big late-game lead. If this was Wisconsin and Brett Bielema a few years ago against... Oh, I think it was against Indiana or some some team that was getting his ass whooped, and everybody lost their mind because they were like, "Man, I can't believe you had the starters and, and you won the game sixty to three or some bullshit like that." If this was college, man, I'm telling you, Zach Wilson, not the president but the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, would be getting hammered. Sportsmanship, can't believe it. What's going on? This is terrible. Because they were like, "Sorry, Jimmy." <laughs> or Johnny, whoever the fuck you are, the coach for the uh, Baltimore Ravens, whatever hardball you are, I'm going to smash and thrash and crash and destroy and burn your flipping, not just house, not just your community, not just your city, but your whole damn state down. Joe, throw it again. We're up, what, 41-something? How many yards does Joe have? Even though it's about, what, four minutes, five minutes, six left, six minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. Running? Man, fuck that. How many yards did Joe Burrow have? 437? Throw it, Joe. Fuck it. Throw it. <laughs> you got Jamar Chase going deep. Throw that motherfucker. I mean, it was, I mean, it was something like that. So it was, uh, yeah, fuck you, Wink. Don't give him a Joe gold jacket, huh? Let me tell you something, man. If um, if the Cincinnati Bengals play the Baltimore Ravens every week, uh, yeah, it would be a situation. At least taking the example of this season, yeah, Cincinnati would be the greatest dynasty in sports and Joe Burrow would be breaking everyone's record within six or seven years. Cincinnati this season beating Baltimore combined 82 to 38. Burrow has thrown for 941 yards against the Ravens. Seven touchdowns, one interception, and has completed 70% of his 85 pass attempts against that team this season. Yikes, I don't know of a season where a quarterback put that type of ass whooping on a team, not once, but twice. This wasn't a situation where it was just a one-game fluke if you're a fan of Cincinnati or the Ravens. You could say, fuck it, it was a two-game fluke, but that two-game fluke, good, goodness gracious, the Lord have mercy, sakes alive. And look, Baltimore understood was ravaged by injuries, in COVID restrictions, their starting quarterback Marlon Humphrey and Marcus Peters were out because they're out with season-ending injuries. Backup cornerbacks Jimmy Smith and Chris uh, Westry were on the COVID list, so they didn't play. And then during the game in the first quarter, Anthony Everett was carted off the field with a chest injury. So I get it, I get it. They weren't playing with the uh, they weren't playing with the greatest of secondary folks. But still, five twenty-five is five twenty-five, and Mama and Joey B did exactly what he needed to do against the team in a situation like that. So, hey, man, 
Burrow has been the deal. Burrow has been uh, that guy. And if you're speaking about a team that's up and coming, man, take a look at the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, they had some slips. They had some dips. They had some trips this season where it was kind of like you lost to the Jets. What? But you take a look at the Cincinnati the Cincinnati Bengals right now, first place in the AFC North. You take a look at them being 4-1 and one in conference. And in that conference where they're 4-1, and one, they're only lost coming to Cleveland. They beat Pittsburgh twice. They beat the Baltimore Ravens twice. Hey, man, Joe Burrow's been getting it done. He's averaging almost 400 yards per game, 11 touchdowns, completing about 70% of his 166 pass attempts against the uh, Ravens, against the Steelers, and against the Browns. And Cincinnati, take a look at the squad. Take a look at some of their skill players. Joe Mixon is age 25, age 25, and he's rushed for 1,159 yards, which is second in the conference and 13 touchdowns. T. Higgins is only 22 years old. Their draft pick out of Clemson. He's caught 71 passes for 1,000 yards and six touchdowns. And the guy who everybody is predicting is going to be the offensive rookie of the year, wide receiver Jamar Chase out of LSU, he's only 21 years old. And he already has this season 68 receptions for over 1,100 yards and 10 touchdowns. So, man, watch out for the Bengals. I'm not saying they're going to do anything this year, but uh, they have a really, really good foundation. And for Joe Burrow, last season, the Bengals went 4-11-1, finished uh, last in the division. This season, they're currently in first place in the AFC North and are 9-6. and six. Again, hey man, Joe Burrow, Dak Prescott, put them up there in terms of should be have uh, serious consideration for that MVP. I Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I'm just thinking, I wonder, why, why do you think Burrow doesn't get the doesn't get the love that he deserves? I'm not saying he doesn't get any love. I'm not saying he gets, I'm, I'm not saying that he gets a decent amount of love. I'm just thinking and asking you, why is it that Joe Burrow doesn't get the love I think that he deserves? Now, my definition of Joe Burrow getting the love for real in a respectful way to say that already he's one of the top seven or eight quarterbacks in the league. He might not be Josh Allen. He might not be Patrick Mahomes. He might not be Aaron Rodgers. He might not be Tom Brady. But I tell you one thing, in that next group of quarterbacks who, oh, by the way, this season are good enough, in my opinion, to win a Super Bowl, if you're speaking about a Dak Prescott type of uh, quarterback, uh, that, that, that's the love that Joe Burrow should be getting. Now, maybe you're watching programs, sports talk programs. Maybe you're listening to sports talk radio. Maybe you're listening to podcasts who just gush on and on and on and on about Joe Burrow. And maybe my, my head is maybe too far up my humongous ass to realize that. But I hear a whole lot of, oh, Justin Herbert this and Justin Herbert that. Justin Herbert's the man. Justin Herbert's awesome. Justin Herbert looks like a guy who could be the guy in five, six, seven, eight years when we're talking about the best quarterback, everyone's thoughts go to Justin Herbert, Justin Herbert, Justin Herbert, Justin Herbert. But I'm thinking Justin Herbert, Joey Burrow, Justin Herbert, Joey Burrow. So that's my deal. So I'm just thinking what's the what's the, what's the situation? I, I I think when you take a look at Burrow, where is his wow qualities in terms of athleticism or arm talent or something like that? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, coming into the draft, the naysayers, and this is the same thing that Mac Jones is facing. 
it was a situation where, yeah, you know, how, how much of, how much of Joe Burrow is because of what he was surrounded by at LSU? And how much is of it is him being a great quarterback? Okay. Yeah. You know, his senior year at LSU after basically we did, we never even heard of the guy the first two years at Ohio State. He couldn't beat Dwayne Haskins out at Ohio State. He transfers to LSU his junior year. It was, yeah, yeah. I mean, nothing great, nothing awesome. Nothing that made you say, man, this guy, man, when he gets into the NFL, good lordy. N- nothing in this junior year. He had one good game against Auburn, and the rest were, yeah, uh-huh. Then they go ahead, and Ed Orgeron hires Joe Brady, and all of a sudden now everything clicks, and he throws for 5,600 yards, completion rate of 76%, and throws 60 touchdowns, and it's like, what the fuck was this? Where in the crossroads in Mississippi did Joe Burrow go? to uh, sell his soul to the devil so he could play some football like that. And did the devil tell, tell him exactly where Robert Johnson was buried? But he came back and lit shit up. So it was a situation moving into the draft where it was, hey, man, is Joe Burrow just a product of his environment and his teammates? Or is he really the real deal? And again, you take a look at his, you take a look at his stature. You take a look at his physical talents and attributes. He doesn't have the arm talent of a Patrick Mahomes. He doesn't have the athleticism of a Lamar Jackson or a, or a Kyler Murray. He doesn't have the size or the arm talent or the athleticism all blended into one like Justin Herbert. He's not 6'6", 245 pounds with a rocket arm who can run a 4-4-40. You know, he's not elusive and unbelievable like Lamar Jackson. You know, he doesn't make passes that have you go, huh? Like Patrick Mahomes. So, if you took a look at him, there was nothing that stood out except for you really had to be knowledgeable in what you were looking for and understanding what a quarterback was all about to be successful to realize how sharp his decision-making was, how football intelligent that he was, how decisive in his decision-making that he was, all of these type of things that you can't, you can't equate by looking at a quarterback or watching a quarterback if you're not really deep in the weeds of how to evaluate a quarterback at an NFL level. I can't. I'm not an NFL scout. Sorry, I hate to say this. I haven't spent 10, 15, 20 years on the road evaluating quarterbacks. Sorry, just haven't done it. Haven't been under the tutelage of any coaches or quarterback coaches or quarterback gurus to uh, evaluate a quarterback for an NFL franchise. Just don't have the experience. Just don't have the knowledge. And guess what? Neither do you, neither do you, neither do you, and neither do you who are listening to this podcast. But uh, we can kind of take a look at someone who stands six foot six, weighs 245 pounds, who is elusive and has a cannon for an arm. We can take a look at that and evaluate. Yeah, that guy's going to be pretty good. <laughs> we can take a look at the throws Patrick Mahomes makes in the NFL and say, yeah, that guy's pretty good. <laughs> that guy seems to be all right. You know, we could take a look at the athleticism of Lamar Jackson and say, yeah, that guy's pretty athletic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lamar Jackson, one of the reasons why he fell to 32 was we didn't know, or scouts didn't know how well his game would translate to the NFL because they just thought that he was mainly a running quarterback or a quarterback with ungodly athleticism. But how focused, how knowledgeable, how uh, fundamentally sound he was of a of being a pocket quarterback. The scouts, coaches, GM and such 
we're still yet not fully aware to expand the mind and think outside the box to what Lamar Jackson could bring. Okay, he's not Tom Brady. Okay, he's not Peyton Manning. Okay, he's not Drew Brees in terms of being that stand-in-the-pocket, pocket type of presence. Okay, he's not those things. But damn, someone needs to take advantage of that athleticism. I mean, someone needs to go ahead and blend in the athleticism with his uh, quarterbacking skills. And once his quarterbacking skills get better, he still has that athleticism, which is going to make him a dual threat of all dual threats. Joe Burrow signified nothing concerning that. No one took a look at Joe Burrow's athleticism and said, oh, doggy, boy, we've got something here. No one took a look at his arm talent or his arm strength or how far he could throw the football and say, oh, doggone it. We got something here. I mean, nothing like that. So I think that's also one of the one of the reasons why he doesn't look like he doesn't have the statuous look of being that type of quarterback. But believe me, he is. Believe me, in terms of potency, in terms of importance, in terms of how good he is, Joe Burrow is that guy. You better start paying attention to him. And when you start talking about who's going to be that quarterback of the future, the next generation, the next wave, very quickly out your mouth, it better be Joe Burrow. Yo, I keep a smile on my face even when it's looking very grim. I think about them babies innocent like cherubims. I'm living in the era when there is more black people owning things than there's ever been in America. From small banks to big labels, property and businesses, even stations on cable. Still we not able to control the money. Swan still on the table and ghettos across the country. Our babies stay hungry, but we got black senators in Congress. That's the illusion of progress. Getting hype when you see blacks on TV is plain dumb. When them cats still don't understand where they came from. Let's get everybody's head not into the same drum. Then have conversations that cross generations. It's then and only then you will see that these kids imitate images from the 70s that's the decade we were born into conforming to the code of the pip and the player what you want to do call the mayor Guliani say we got no clue probably forget about the Q-tips most definitely the Wendell's World is Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just a reminder, check out my YouTube channel, Wendell's World is Sports. The audio or the video of what I'm going to be speaking about in the world of sports. It can last anywhere between five minutes and a half an hour, 40 minutes. Filled with highlights, filled with good stuff. Filled with my thoughts and opinions about what's going on in the world of sports. That might be a little different from what I'm putting down on my podcast. So if you don't have time to be listening to my podcast for two hours, or you want to go to YouTube and watch some highlights and watch some other things, the way I express myself in terms of what I'm speaking and what I'm thinking about, the YouTube version of this podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, W-E-N-D-E, apostrophe S, World and Sports. Check it out on youtube so that's my deal um happy new year everybody i don't know exactly when you're going to be listening to this i I sure hope as much as i always enjoy people going ahead and downloading and following and subscribing and rating and reviewing and doing all these types of things with my podcast as much as i am thankful and, and and humble by those who are doing it all across the world here on the podcast world i i sure hope that on December 31st, especially if we move toward the midnight hour, I, I, I sure hope that you're doing something different than listening to my podcast. Man. Do, go, go ahead and do something else. Either be sleeping to bring in the new year or either be hanging out with someone that you love or hanging out with family or doing something, man. Please, whatever you do, 
at 11.30, 11.45 at night on New Year's Eve. Don't be bumping the uh, world of sports. Now, you want to go ahead and take some of my music and uh, listen to my show and go to my breaker or joiner, boogie music, and say, man, that was pretty cool. Let me go ahead and uh, download that. Or let me go ahead and find that song on YouTube so I can bring in the New Year, you know, bumping that uh, music. Well, then I can, I can understand that. But please don't be... Please don't have my voice in your ear or anywhere near anywhere near you or anyone that you love to bring in the year 2022. Just just some advice. Just some thoughtful advice. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. We've got the uh, speaking about what's happening in the uh, world of sports. Spoke about the NFL. Spoke about Joe Burrow putting some respect to his name when you're speaking about who are going to be the superstars in the upcoming seasons. Now let's go ahead and start talking about what's happening now in the NFL, the NFC standings as we go into week 16. We take a look at the we take a look at the division leaders. I don't like the AFC who I'll be speaking about in the next segment. The NFC pretty much is uh, set in terms of who's going to be making the playoffs. If you take a look at the division leaders, three of them have already clinched the number one seeded Green Bay Packers with a record of 12-3. and three. They've clinched the NFC North Division, the number two seeded Dallas Cowboys with an 11-4 record. They've clinched the uh, NFC East, the number three Los Angeles Rams, 11-4. They've clinched the uh, they've clinched the playoff berth, but not the division title. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who are the number fourth seed, They've clinched the NFC South uh, division. The wild card teams, number five is the Arizona Cardinals, losers of three straight. They are now 10-5, and five, but they've clinched a playoff berth. The number six seed is San Francisco 49ers, coming off a tough, tough loss to the Tennessee Titans. They are 8-7. and seven. The number seven seed in the last uh, wild card team is the Philadelphia Eagles. They are 8-7. and seven. And then you take a look at the teams on the outside looking in. The number 8 seed is the Minnesota Vikings at 7-8. and eight. The number 9 seed is Atlanta. The Atlanta Falcons, they are 7-8. and eight. The New Orleans Saints, 7-8. They are number 10. And then teams who are either done or eliminated from the playoffs. The Washington football team, who I'll get to in a second. Um, well, more than a second. They're seeded number 11 they're six and nine the carolina panthers with starting quarterback cam newton and back they are number 12 and they are eliminated from the playoffs at five and ten so even though cam newton in his first game back after he scored that two-yard touchdown run after pj walker was the person who got the panthers down to the goal line for him to score that touchdown had to go ahead find the nearest camera as he always does take off his helmet and then make sure that the camera make sure that the spotlight make sure that all the attention is on him despite the fact that taking off his helmet meant that it would be a 15-yard penalty on his team but real that really didn't bother cam because what really bothers cam when he's trying to uh, show off and put all the attention on himself it's all about me 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 and if it hurts my teammates well then screw it it's not all about them 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 or us 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 it's really me 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 so when that jackass scored that touchdown his first game back on a two-yard scamper, ooh, really great stuff, Cam. And you took off your helmet and you screamed, I'm back, I'm back. Really didn't mean shit, did it there, Cam? Because being I'm back means that you're 5-10 and 10 and you're back on the bench where you need to go back to the sidelines and maybe go back 
to the unemployment office because when I say unemployment office, I mean for the for the NFL because you being a starting quarterback in the NFL, you should have never been back. So the Carolina Panthers are five and ten, eliminated from the playoffs, and are the, are seeded number twelve. The 13 seed, the Chicago Bears, they're five and ten. They're eliminated from the playoffs. The 14 seed, Seattle Seahawks, five and ten. Number 15, the New York Giants, four and eleven. And number 16, coming in dead last, is your Detroit Lions, twelve and two and one. So those are the standings in the NFC. If you take a look at the NFC conference, I guess the main takeaway. From what we saw this past weekend, or this past week in the NFC, the Rams with a good victory, solid victory. Stafford was a little bit shaky, but still a 30-23 victory over the Minnesota Vikings. Defense looked pretty good. Tampa doing what they needed to do, crushing the I'm back. Carolina Panthers led by I'm back. Cam Newton, 32-6. They look good, despite playing with a lot of... uh, Receivers missing, uh, but still, Tom Brady getting it done. A lot of offensive weapons. Not a lot, but some key offensive weapons for the Buccaneers not playing, but still put together a pretty solid game. The defense was fantastic. Mm, The Cardinals losing again. Hmm. Again, two of the three losses. I mean, okay, to the Rams at home. Doggone it. The Detroit Lions game. Uh, unacceptable, and then losing to the Indianapolis Colts, one of the hotter teams in the NFL. I don't know really what you make into it. Again, I've, I've said this, I've spoke this narrative for a while when it comes to the Arizona Cardinals. I just don't think that many people believe in Cliff Kingsbury. I don't think many people believe in King, uh, Cliff Kingsbury as soon as he got that job to be the coach it was an outside the box it was an interesting hire to say the least taking a guy from college with no NFL coaching experience and had a losing record as a coach at Texas Tech and he was really ready to be the offensive coordinator for Clay Helton at USC when he got this opportunity to be an NFL coach so a lot of I shouldn't say a lot I don't know the exact number but there were rumblings about man really Cliff Kingsbury you're going to take this guy and he's going to bring in this college Big 12 type of offense? Is this really going to work? Well, when you have a quarterback like Kyler Murray, it does. But for long-term gain and success, I, I don't know how fruitful this can be, even with a guy who I think could eventually turn into a quarterback who could take your team, who can be the leader on the team that won the Super Bowl and Kyler Murray. I don't know how this structure is going to work in terms of the offense is concerned. If you take a look at the back end of seasons with Kingsbury being a coach, not just in the NFL with the Cardinals, but also with Texas Tech, his first part of the season, he's been very successful. But over the last uh, back nine of seasons when he was with Texas Tech and with Arizona, he's always faltered. So again, I'm at the question where, look, you know, all firing of coaches and all job evaluations of co- of coaches are not the same. So, yeah, Arizona going to make the playoffs. That's great. That's wonderful. But if they finish the season like 11 and 6 or or somewhere like that and they go out with a whimper 
in the playoffs, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Cliff Kingsbury loses his job. I'm not advocating for it. I'm not justifying it. But either he loses his job or he goes into the 2022 season on the hot seat. And you could say with the exception of Bill Belichick and Andy Reid and Harbaugh and a couple of others that most coaches going into their season are on some type of seat that's warm, hot, lukewarm, or whatever. But I think in terms of which coaches seat is going to be the hottest coming into the 2022 seasons of the Arizona Cardinals kind of fade and go out without really any type of oh yeahness. Cliff Kingsbury, if he's not fired this season, is going to be uh, it's going to be the scuttlebutt. It's going to be the discussion of uh, Arizona Cardinals football moving into the next season. But um, tough loss at home to the Indianapolis Colts again. Not the most embarrassing thing in the world, but uh, you know, faltering again like this, not good, not good at all. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Dallas Cowboys. Look like they're, they look like a complete Super Bowl contender on Sunday night. One night. Embarrass my Washington. Why am I still a fan of these fucking clown skins on Sunday night football, 56 to 14? I guess, you know, the situation. I remember when Josh Allen for Buffalo cut first uh, couple of games of the season, the first three or four games of the season, he was, uh, inconsistent and uh, you know he just didn't seem to be getting on track the Josh Allen that we all know and love right now he didn't seem to be that guy translating from what we saw in the 2020 uh, season to 2021 and what's going on and this that and the other then he played the Washington football team and he seemed to get right and it was like hmm you know maybe Washington is a football team for if you need your offense to be doing some things, if you need to get your confidence back, if you need to get your rhythm back, if you need to get uh, everything back in step, the uh, train back on the tracks, playing Washington would be a pretty good idea. Well, that uh, example boded perfectly for Dak Prescott. You play Washington, exactly what the Dak Prescott needed to get back on track. Completed 28 of 39 for 339 yards. Four touchdowns. Previous seven games, he threw nine touchdowns and six interceptions. That happened in lieu of uh, him getting a calf injury. The first six games of the season, before the injury happened, he had 16 touchdowns and four interceptions. Talk about Prescott being in the slump. Talk about the Dallas offense, what's going on. Talk about why they're not putting any points. Talking about what happened to the Dallas offense after the first six games of the season where they looked like one of the best offenses in the league. What happened to this offense? What's going on for this offense? Ah, playing the Washington football team, that's exactly what the NFL doctor needed. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of playing bad football. No cure is going to cure, no pills going to cure my ills. So I have to play the Washington football team. Bingo! So there we go, man. Prescott tied a club record for passing TDs in the first half with four. And very judicious to a TD to a running back. Tight end, a wide receiver, and even a backup tackle, even a backup lineman. You get a touchdown, and you get a touchdown, and you get a touchdown. And oh, we're playing Washington, don't worry about it. And you get a touchdown. Your girlfriend in the stand? Well, come on now. You get a touchdown. You trying to? You brought your uh, girl to the game, and you're trying to impress her? Well, come on down, because guess what? We're playing the Washington secondary, and you get a touchdown. Jesus, flipping me flips. Dallas on offense. 
Uh, with the Cowboys playing most of their backups in the second half, 28 first downs, 10 of 15 on third down conversions, almost 500 total yards, 497 to be exact, and they average seven yards per play. And you get a first down, and you get a first down, and you get a first the Washington football team, goodness gracious. Oh, on defense, the Cowboys held Washington to 14 first downs. Washington went 4 of 15 on third and four down conversions. They completed less than 50% of their 32 pass attempts, averaged 4.5 yards per pass. DeMarcus Lawrence scored on a 40-yard uh, interception return. Special team scored a touchdown on a block punt that, re- that was returned for a touchdown, or he blocked the run into the end zone, so he... Didn't have to return it every uh, anywhere. So the only way the Cowboys didn't score in this game against the uh, Washington and Bearskins were a punt or kickoff return for a touchdown or a fumble return for a touchdown on defense. Other than that, they scored. A passing touch, you get a touchdown. Running the ball, you get a touchdown. Special teams block punt, you get a touchdown. Interception of a pass, you get a touchdown. Tyler Haneke, that's your guy, huh? That's my guy, huh? Yeah. So moving forward. I'll get to Washington in a second. I'm just right now starting to bubble over with rage. <laughs> so what does it mean for Dallas as conference and title contenders? They look great, man. They look awesome. They look dominant. They look like they had enough. It looked like the previous games on offense, they were like, you know what, man? We've seen enough. We've had enough. Let's just go out there and just dominate. And they seem to be razor sharp, seem to be razor focused, and um, they put an ass whooping that was extremely impressive. And look, as bad as Washington played, and they played bad. They played pretty badly. They're not Jacksonville. They're not Houston. They're not the Lions. So it wasn't them beating up. The, it wasn't like the Cowboys were beating up on the worst of the worst. Yes, Washington has been ravaged by COVID and, and uh, injury. Got all that. But this is professional football, man. 56 to 14. 49-7. If the Cowboys wanted to, they could have put up at least 84 or 77. I mean, if you think about it, they scored they scored uh, six touchdowns in the first half, right? So, if you're speaking about, if this was college, and they really needed to impress some voters by running up the score and trying to improve their ranking, or the power ranking, or whatever, I mean, this was a situation where you're speaking about the Cowboys could have easily put up 70 to 77 points. 56 was just like, okay, call off the dogs. Call off the dogs, y'all. So right now, the Cowboys are the second seed in the conference. They're one game behind Green Bay. And they're tied with the same record as the Rams and Tampa. Now, they beat the Rams, so that's the one reason why they're ahead of them. And even though Tampa beat them the opening night of the season, their conference records within the conference, Dallas had a better record. So because of that tiebreaker, it goes to Dallas. Don't know how that works. Doesn't know. Don't know how that makes sense. But whatever, man. They're all in the playoffs together, so that's good. So if the playoffs started today, at the number two seed, Dallas would host number seven Philadelphia. So the remaining schedule for Dallas, you've got next week at home against Arizona, then on the road against Philadelphia. Green Bay's remaining schedule at home against Minnesota, on the road against Detroit, and then the other threats for Dallas. Number two seed, the Rams are playing at Baltimore and then at home against the San Francisco 49ers and Tampa Bay. They're on the road at the New York Jets and then they finish the season against, I'm back, Cam Newton in Carolina. So, 
Um, look, man. Um, I I think this is a situation where I'm gonna put a I'm gonna put a hold on the Dallas Cowboy is back talk. Now I I'm I'm thinking that hey, you know what? They weren't as bad at the team that uh, you know went through a stretch where they really weren't playing that well, well where they really weren't scoring that many points. Dak was not looking like himself. I'm not, I'm not saying that that team is going to rear its ugly head for the last uh, two games, especially two games in which, hey man, going down the stretch, all of these teams, all of these situations that we're talking about now, they're um, they're 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 not resting players. This is not a situation where in week 18 that you're going to see the second stringers for for Dallas. I don't. I'm, I'm going to go on the assumption of that. So because of that little bit of a slump that the offense took, I think that Mike McCarthy, the head coach, is going to want to work on that momentum and do everything they can to keep that thing going. And one thing that you want to do to try to keep that thing going is to be consistent, to be consistent with the practice and be consistent with the game plan and be consistent with the game management and the game time during that situation. Now, if it came down to, look, you know, there's a difference, I believe, when you're a playoff contending team, you've already clinched your spot in the playoffs that last a week of the season. Some might do it to get themselves ready for that grind, which is the NFL playoffs, anticipating that you'll have a long haul because you feel confident in your team making it to the championship of the conference and then into the Super Bowl and everything that goes with that. There are some injuries that possibly we don't know about in terms of, look, if it wasn't this point in the season, he would play. And if it wasn't this point of the season, he wouldn't play. I can understand that if the game's important, but you have an injury to one of your key players to where it's like, since we're already in the playoffs, whether we get the number two, three seed or the three seed or the four seed or whatever, we're going to need this guy rested for a week or two to have a really good shot at winning a championship. I don't think Dallas is in that position for a Dak Prescott or something like that to say, hey, even though we're in the number two seed, depending upon what happens with the LA Rams, depending upon what happens with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, we're just going to go ahead and sit you out because your calf might need a little little uh, time off to heal a little bit more. I think because of some of the lulls that they had this season, when you're speaking about getting shut out, almost getting shut out at home by Denver, and then they had nine points against the uh, Kansas City football team. I think because now, with it being so late in the season, the offense seems to look like it's going to be coming back around again. But I think you just want to keep playing those games. I think you want to keep getting those reps. I think you just want to be getting that game time for Dak and stuff. And again, there's still some consequence to winning and losing this late in the season. So I'm going to guess that are we going to see the Cowboys play at that high of a level on a consistent basis throughout the rest of the season, especially on offense? No, but I also don't think that they're going to regress and retreat back to where they were, where, again, they were getting beat up and mauled and embarrassed offensively by the Broncos and by Kansas City. I think we're going to see closer to the team that showed up against Washington on Sunday night than the team that played at home against Denver and on the road against Kansas City. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Ah, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Okay, all right. Let me spend just a quick second here to talk about one of the most embarrassing games of the past 20 years by my Washington football team. Once again, um, I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Now, speaking here of the fan, don't have any notes, don't have any thought, uh, don't have any bullet points. I'm just going to spend a few minutes or two or 90 seconds or 120 seconds just to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do with the team. I don't know what to make of this team. I don't know um, what my emotions should be. I mean, being a fan, it should be anger. But what should I be angry at? Should I be angry at the fact that I'm continuing to be a fan? Am I, should I be angry at the performance? Should I be angry at the embarrassing situation that took place between Deron Payne and Jonathan Allen? Now, look, it, it wasn't a brouhaha. I was watching the game. It's like, yeah, bad look, but it wasn't. I mean, Kevin, you know, Buddy Ryan punched Kevin McBride, at least tried to, uh, on, on the sidelines. Those are two coaches. I mean, we've seen shouting and screaming matches. We've seen Bill O'Brien and Tom Brady when Bill O'Brien was the offensive coordinator, go after Tom Brady and those two, this, that, and the other. We, if you listen to NFL films and you take a look at, uh, you know, some of the guys talking trash back and forth to each other, teammates, when they get angry at one another, I mean, you take a look at someone like a Dan Marino or you take a look at some of these guys who have been known to undress some of their teammates if they do wrong or whatever, yeah, it never went to the level of physicality. But again, somebody mushed them in the face. And then someone threw a feeble punch. It wasn't meant to uh, break his jaw or anything like that. And then he mushed, he threw a punch, and everything was cool. People got, well, I shouldn't say it was cool, but people got in the way. And it was just a mean mug st- uh, contest. I mean, no one went tried to go back and forth at each other. I mean, this wasn't a, uh, this wasn't a uh, AEW or WWE pull apart or something like that where you had, you know, multitude of players and coaches trying to hold those two guys back and they're, trying to get around to try to fight each other. This wasn't Isaiah Stewart trying to go after LeBron James when he got hit in an elbow when the Lakers played the Pistons. It wasn't anything like that. So thought it was blown out of uh, blown out of proportion. But again, it just took, spoke of a situation where I mean what what where if I don't know. What can we do with the fan? As a fan, as a Washington football fan, what can we do? Because we all know what the answer is to turn this thing around. We all know what the answer is. It's not about a quarterback, even though we need one. It's not about what happened on the sidelines. It's not about whether Ron Rivera is a good coach. It's not about Ron Rivera that he have too much power. It's not anything about that. It always comes down to one person and one person only. And that's the owner. And I've said it before, as long as Daniel Snyder owns this football team, we're never going to go anywhere. We're never going to be relevant. We're never going to be functional. We're never going to be Super Bowl contenders. We're never going to be conference contenders. Hey, you know, every once in a while, we might take advantage of a bad year in the uh, division and win it. whoop de damn do Congrats. We won the division last year. whoop de damn do We won it with a 7-9 record. What does that mean long term? Everybody was dancing in the street like Martin. Well, not everybody. A lot of people in D.C. were dancing in the street like Martin the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie because we won the uh, division last year. As I said many times, who cares? I wanted us to go 0-16, man. I was openly rooting. Yes, I was openly rooting for the Washington football team to lose because I wanted Trevor Lawrence because I wanted Justin Fields. I didn't know anything about Zach Wilson or... Didn't know Mac Jones was going to have the season that he had. And I didn't know anything about Trey Lance. Going into the season, I wanted to go 0-16 because, man, 
I wanted Trevor Lawrence. Because seven and nine, five years from now, doesn't get you a franchise quarterback. In 2020, going 0 and 16 does. Going 2 and 14 does. Going 3 and 13 does. Now, look, there's no guarantee. Death taxes and Trevor Lawrence being a generational great quarterback doesn't fit in there. Same thing with Justin Fields. But damn, at least it gives some franchises hope. At least it gives the fan base some hope. We have no hope. As long as Daniel Snyder is the owner of the team, we have no hope of ever being relevant. Ever. Man, hail to the... Hail victory. Man, we met that, that, that era of my youth and what Washington football meant, not just to me, but to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, in some cases even heading on down to Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, Roanoke, Virginia, parts of South Carolina. That's gone. That's gone. That's gone. Joe Gibbs, the Hawks, that's gone. Joe Thiesman and John Riggins and the Fun Bunch, that's gone. Being the team of the 80s along with the Giants and the San Francisco 49ers, that's gone. That's all we've got left. That's all we've got left. Ever since Daniel Snyder became the owner of this football team, name me a memory that the younger generation can be proud of. Name me an instance. Name me a time. Name me a place. So Daniel Snyder has become owner of this football team that we can take a look back and say, damn, I'm proud to be a fan of that franchise. When? When? We can't. It's just been embarrassment after embarrassment after embarrassment. And we can yell and scream. I'm yelling and screaming right now. We can yell and scream and get ourselves in a bad mood if you're a Washington football fan. And we can sit here and talk about, I want this team to draft this quarterback, or we need to go ahead and get this coach, or we need to go ahead and get this GM. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever change with this organization as long as Daniel Snyder is in charge of it. Every blue moon, we might win a division title. Every blue moon, we might even win a division title, and maybe, possibly, maybe, every 10, 15 years, win a playoff game, maybe, but we'll never be a team that's going to be that organization that's going to be building championship contenders. Championship contenders, 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 contenders! Hell, I don't even need champions. I'll take contenders right now. That's how desperate I am. I'll take functional. Give me a, let the Washington football team be functional for five, five to 10 years. Functional. Don't do anything to embarrass ourselves for five or ten years. I'll take that. Screw winning. I just I just want to be an organization. I just want to be a fan of an organization that's functional, that's decent, that has some character and won't harass women. Was I yelling there? I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. Bill Belichick tomorrow could say, hey, you know what? Screw it. I'm tired of Robert Kraft in New England. I'm going to go over and I'm going to coach. <laughs> I'm going to coach the Washington football team. And then Patrick Mahomes might say, ah, you know what? Kansas City, Missouri sucks. I've always really wanted to play for the Washington football team. And somehow, some way, he becomes our quarterback. 
<laughs> you know, all of a sudden the skill players for the uh, Cincinnati Bengals say, yeah, you know what? I've always somehow, some way wanted to play for Washington and somehow, some way the league grants us that dream, that unrealistic, ridiculous dream. We can have that type of talent and along in, in that coaching in that coach and along and Daniel Snyder is the owner. Nothing will change. The only thing with that group will change is we might win a couple of more division titles, but we'll still be a joke because we got a front office who likes to harass women and cheerleaders. And we got an owner who likes to intimidate people who talk about, I'm going to do the right thing and try to uh, testify the fact that you're a creep and that people who worked in this office were abusive to women. So I'm going to have the owner try to intimidate them not to uh, testify against us. That's my team. That's my team. Why do I still stick with these fucking fools? I'll never know. Why do I continue to cheer and get emotionally invested like I am now with this with this team? I don't know. But I don't know, man. Maybe it's some sort of maybe I'm being something maybe I'm like being some abused or something like that. I'm the abuser. I'm the abusee and the Snyder skins are my abusers and I cannot uh, leave my abusers. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, I know domestic violence and this is a whole lot different. I'm not trying to make light of it, but man, it's like I, I gotta be I gotta be some type of fucking fool to continue to care about this team when they've done nothing with Snyder being the owner to care about me as a fan. I, I must be one of the dumbest motherfuckers walking this planet. And I'm quite sure many people who are listening to this podcast will say, yeah, I agree with that. And believe me, it's not because you're a fan of the Washington football team do I think that you're one of the dumbest motherfuckers walking this earth. All you have to do is open your mouth and talk and bingo. <laughs> Kids, come in here for a second. I want to hear. I want you to hear the dumbest motherfucker uh, walking this earth. His name is Wendell Wallace. He's at the podcast. All right. All right. Thank you very much for letting me get that off my chest. Time for us to talk about the AFC, and uh, I will talk about that as soon as we listen to a little book of tea in the MG's melting pot, melting what's going on in the AFC, melting what's happening with the Buffalo Bills and their chances of winning the championship, melting what happened exactly with the, <clears throat> with the New England Patriots, melting the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk, sports talk podcast with some of the best music that you can ever hear. You're goddamn right. Wendell's World in Sports still the dumbest motherfucker walking this planet being a Washington football fan. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what is happening, what is going on in the NFL, going on in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, que passa. 
Mi amigos, wassalam alaikum, shalom, konnichiwa, namaste, good morning, good abend. So glad that you could be listening to this podcast, speaking about what is happening now in the AFC, spoke about the NFC, spoke about how in the NFC, for the most part, all of the playoff spots have been taken, except for a couple. In the AFC, it is a completely different situation when you take a look at the current standings, if you take a look at the division leaders when you're speaking about the number one seeded Kansas City football team at 11-4. They clinch the AFC West, the number two seed Tennessee Titans. They are 10-5. They are the leaders of the AFC South. The number three seed is the Cincinnati Bengals with my man Joe Burrow, 9-6 leaders in the AFC North and the number four seed. Now the number four seed, one time a couple of weeks ago, they were on the outside of the playoffs looking in, or at the very least, they were the number seven seed. Now with their victory over the New England Patriots, the Buffalo Bills have moved from teetering between not making the playoffs and making the playoffs to now leading the AFC East with a nine and six sec, uh, nine and six record. The wild card teams, the number five seed, Indianapolis Colts, they're nine and six. The number six seed now falling from the top of the AFC East. The New England Patriots, they're at 9-6, and six, the number 7 seed. Now, I want to apologize. I, <laughs> I mean, I did podcast before. I was sitting there talking about, man, what's going to be going on with the uh, Miami Dolphins? Man, the situation looks bleak. They don't have any draft picks because of the trade for the acquisition or the right to get uh, to draft uh, Jaden Waddle, to move up to draft Jaden Waddle. And what's going to be happening with Tua? And why aren't these guys going after Deshaun Watson? All is bleak. The future looks bleak for Miami. And those things may be true. But as of right now, Brian Flores, my goodness gracious, man, you've got them guys are rolling seven games in a row that the Miami Dolphins have won. They are now sitting in the playoffs at the number seven seed with an eight and seven record on the outside looking in teams. The number eight seeded failing, falling Baltimore Ravens are at eight and seven. The number nine seed is the Los Angeles Chargers with a unexcusable, unacceptable performance against the Houston Texans. And they lost. They fall to eight and seven and are now out of the playoffs as of right now. The number 10 seed, Las Vegas Raiders, are also eight and seven. The number 11 seeded Pittsburgh Steelers are seven, seven and one. The number 12 seed, Cleveland Browns. Wait a minute. Hold on for a second. Yep. Baker Mayfield just threw another interception. They are now 7-8, and eight, the number 13 seed, Denver Broncos. They are 7-8, and eight, and on the bottom of the conference, you have eliminated from the playoffs the number 14, New York Jets at 4-11, and 11, number 15 seed, Houston Texans at 4-11, and 11, and coming in last, the Jacksonville Jaguars at 2-13. You really can't make too much fun of them anymore because Urban Meyer is gone, even though that clown show that was the – Jaguars at the end of that Houston Texans game. Not good. Not good. Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere, Urban Myers, Urban Myers shaking his head, seeing it going, see, I told you, losers, losers. My offensive coordinator, Bowling Green, wouldn't have done that. Losers. So there you go. All right, but the game of the day in the AFC, the one with the uh, most impact, the Buffalo Bills over the New England Patriots. 33-21, Josh Allen threw for three touchdown passes. Isaiah McKenzie had a career-high 11 catches and yards, and Micah Hyde had two interceptions of Mac Jones. The offense put together a crucial 13-play, 75-yard drive in the fourth quarter 
to take the needed time off the clock and to take the lead or take it back to a two-score lead when the Foxborough crowd was hooting and hollering, had a couple of fourth down conversions that the Buffalo Bills had to make, which they did. They went down the field. Stephon Digg made some big plays. The shovel, wasn't even a shovel pass. It just was a flip pass, sort of kind of, by Josh Allen in the end zone to the tight end to, again, make it a two-score game and more than likely put the game out of reach. Uh, good game by the Buffalo Bills. So now they are the first team to win at New England in consecutive seasons since the Indianapolis Colts of Peyton Manning in 2005 and 2006. And how about that? Huh? We spoke about balance, balance, balance. Now, again, with some teams, you're always, regardless of who you have as a quarterback, the dream, the absolute dream would be to have more running plays than you would passing plays. I don't care if you have Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or whoever, if you can establish that run and run it down their throats and not have to uh, pass the ball as much, regardless of what your offensive philosophy is, that is absolutely golden. But when you have a quarterback or when you have a system that fits the quarterback like a Tom Brady, like a Aaron Rodgers, like a Josh Allen, like a Patrick Mahomes, then a balanced offense means that you're still going to be throwing the ball more than you're going to be running the ball because why wouldn't you have Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers make be the guy who's going to make that decision, right? So there are always going to be a situation for the most part where there's going to be more passing plays than running plays if you're taking a look at a team like the Packers or the Bills or the Bucks or, or one of those squads. But uh, the fact that Buffalo actually tried to run the football and it wasn't a galing, gusting win on a Monday night with the temperature down in the teens, the fact that despite not having those conditions that the Bills still ran the ball for, uh, ran the ball 28 times and averaged four yards per carry. Awesome. (laughs) You know, for, for those guys... That's exactly what you want. Running the ball 28 times, averaging four yards per, per game, equated to having a situation where they were controlling the clock. They ran 50 more, 15 more plays than the Patriots' offense. They had 75, speaking of Buffalo, compared to 60 plays run for New England. They had 28 first downs. They had the ball for over 35 minutes, and they went 9-16 and 16 on third and fourth down convergence. The Bills, that's, that's the way you win. Interesting the fact that both teams went forward on fourth down 10 times in the game, completed 70% of their convergence on 10 fourth down opportunities. So let me see here. If you had 10 opportunities to go forward on fourth down, or you went forward on fourth down 10 times and you made it seven times, what is the percentage of times that you were successful? Let me see. You take the 10 and then you divide it by 7. Do you take the 7 and divide it by 10? No, you take the 7 and divide it by 10. That means it's 1. You bring it down to a 3 and then bring a 5 and 5 and 15%. So that can't be right. So let me see here. You take the 10. You move it over to the 7. You make the decimal point. You bring the decimal point back up. Add that 0. Instead of doing 10 divided by 7 or 7 divided by 10, now you've got the point zero there. So you move that up. Make sure that when I do the division here that you put the 7 on the right side of 
the decimal point. So let me see this. So then after that, you would multiply it 10 times 7, 10 times 7, 10 times 7, 10 times 7. Is it 64? No. Is it 68? No. Is it 32? No. I sound like one of the teenagers at Virgin Valley. Let me see. No, it would be uh, 7. Right, 7. So 7 times 10 is 70. 70 minus 70 is 0. You place the 0 back up there. So, okay, 0 0.70, which then moved the decimal point two times over to the right. 70%. Woohoo! Genius. So, yes, 70% on fourth down conversions by both the Buffalo Bills and the New England Patriots. So, basically moving forward here, what does the victory mean for the Buffalo Bills? Well, it means that they're in first place in the AFC East. It means that they have a one-game advantage in the division because of their record. They split during the regular season as far as head-to-head -head is concerned, but Buffalo is now 4-1 and one in the AFC East Division, while the Patriots are 3-2. and two. Remember, the Patriots lost their season opener against the Miami Dolphins, so no one can really do anything until next week, which means the AFC East is going to go down to the final week of the season. So if you take a look at the remaining schedule, first for Buffalo, they have games, home games against the Atlanta Falcons and the New York Jets. And then if you take a look at the remaining schedule for the New England Patriots, they're at home next week against the Jacksonville Jaguars, homecoming game against the Jacksonville Jaguars. <clears throat> then they're on the road to end the schedule against a now surprisingly tough Miami Dolphin team, which actually has something to play for. So interesting, man. So for Buffalo moving forward, it's like I mentioned before, running the football, Devin Singletary getting some touches, Josh Allen, Josh Allen was running like he was a running back. I mean, forget the slide, slide, slide stuff on a lot of those uh, RPOs and runs that Josh Allen was doing. He was actually uh, doing some things that a running back should be doing. But Josh Allen that played on Sunday, this past Sunday against the New England Patriots, that's the uh, Josh Allen at his best. I, I don't know as far as completion percentage is concerned that Josh Allen it's ever going to get back to the percentage that he had. I think it was close to 70% last uh, season. I don't think Josh Allen is ever going to equate those type of completion percentage numbers. But I do think that this is a guy who can easily complete 63, 64, 65% of his passes. And when you have a Hollister like he has, as far as an arm is concerned, and the arm talent that he has, his ability, and you combine that into you know, the athleticism and his size. I have always said that best case, Josh Allen, he's this generation's Ben Roethlisberger in terms of what he can do with from the uh, quarterback position in terms of his size, in terms of his athleticism, mixed in with the size, his ability to improvise. He's this generation's Ben Roethlisberger. Roethlisberger was coming out of uh, Bowling Green and in his third or fourth year, and the year was 2021, he would look like Josh Allen. He would play like Josh Allen. So Allen is a guy, hey man, he's going to do some shit that's just going to drive you crazy. But just like Patrick Mahomes, the coach, the offensive coordinator, uh, Sean McDermott, the coach, and uh, Brian Dayball, the offensive coordinator, man, it's just some of the stuff that you got to live with. Because in doing so, when Josh Allen is on, or when Josh Allen is consistent, like he was against the Patriots, I mean, that's an elite quarterback right there. We are speaking about an elite quarterback right there. It was a situation we talked about Patrick Mahomes, or I heard people talk about Patrick Mahomes who know a lot more about the quarterback position in NFL football than I do when they were discussing what's wrong with the 
Kansas City football team, and especially on offense, and why is Patrick Mahomes throwing all these dirty bird-looking passes and ugly-looking passes and passes that would make Brett Favre and Jameis Winston blush? Why is he making those type of bad throws and decisions? It's because of impatience and the fact that Patrick Mahomes didn't want to take what the defense was giving them. He was trying to shove some stuff down the throats, and because of that, bad decisions, throwing into double coverage, making some terrible throws, making some, you know, instead of eating a sack or throwing a ball away, he was trying to make magic when there was no magic to be made. So that's the same thing now with Josh Allen, which I saw in this game against Buffalo. The Patriots were moving back. The secondary is moving back. The, um, the linebackers moving back and such. So Allen was like, okay, cool. You're going to do that? I'll, I'll throw a five-yard out. I'll throw a, a six-yard over the middle to my receiver, to my tight end, to my running back coming out of the backfield. And they can get me into second and six, second and four, second and two, second and three. And then I can go ahead and do some work from there. The playbook really opens when you have second and third down and that type of opportunity. And the decisions to remain aggressive on offense, even on fourth downs, I think played a big role. Or I think, you know, really made a statement for Buffalo moving forward. Again, if they can go ahead and play that type of game, get the running back involved, get the running game involved, and take what the defense gives them. And then it's like it's like a, a boxer trying to go for a knockout punch. You know, if you, if you go into a fight looking for the knockout, in most instances, you ain't going to get the knockout, and the chances of you getting knocked out become even greater depending upon who you fight. But if you stick to the game plan, if you are a guy who he who uh, hits hard, when you hit the guy in the shoulders, when you hit the guy in the ribs, when you hit the guy in the stomach, when you hit the guy in the in the in the hips, when you hit the guy in the chest, when you hit the guy up and down the wrist and the arms, when you do that, you might not knock out the guy in the first round, the third round, the fourth round, the fifth round. But guess what? By the eighth round, by the ninth round, by the tenth round, that shit is finally going to get to him. Ask Meldrick Taylor against Julio Cesar Chavez a couple of years ago, or now a couple of decades ago. You know, when you start b- delivering those body shots, then the opportunity to go for the knockout blow is going to be there. With the Buffalo Bills, the way that they were playing against the New England Patriots, while they didn't hit on 40, 50, 60 yard pass plays or those type of chunk plays during the game, it open up opportunities for the Bills to maintain ball possession, to maintain and establish uh, some type of uh, control in the line, on the line of scrimmage. Had Josh Allen have good looks, got everybody involved so the Patriots couldn't key on one person. And because of that, a more balanced offense, I don't care who you are in the NFL, a more balanced offense is a more effective offense. And that's exactly what happened in the game on Sunday with the Bills and the um, New England Patriots. Do the Bills still have some problems, some issues stopping the run? Yes, they do. Again, New England had a good day rushing the ball against the uh, Bills. When you're talking about um, how much did they run for against the uh, against uh, Buffalo? They ran for uh, 149 yards on 28 carries against them. So, again, another problem, another example of Buffalo not being able to stop a running game, but then again, with the balance on offense and the way Josh Allen is going to be playing, you don't need to have an elite defense to uh, go ahead and do what you need to do to be successful and reach your goals, team goals, 
for the Buffalo Bills. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. What does it mean now for the New England Patriots moving forward? When I when I take a look at the uh, Patriots, um, I just see some limitations on offense in terms of what they can do. Again, I asked the question when it came to Matt Jones and how he was performing at the quarterback position. I just thought, just thought that as of right now, because the man is a rookie, the fact that he's played well, but basically he hasn't been asked to win a football game for this team. Now, for New England, if you're playing the New York Jets, or for New England, if you're playing the Jacksonville Jaguars, or for New England, if you're playing a team on the level of the Jacksonville Jaguars and the New York Jets or the New York Giants or the Houston Texans and such or the Detroit Lions and such. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit easier for Mac Jones to throw the ball 25, 30, 35 times a game and have New England put a bunch of points on the board offensively through via the pass. Against teams, playoff type teams, that is not going to be the way to go for the New England Patriots. Mac Jones becomes just a very good ball manager. He becomes this generation's Alex Smith, shall we say, in terms of he's not going to do anything extraordinarily horrendous. Now, against Indianapolis, he threw a bad interception. Against the Bills, he threw a bad interception. But the reason why New England lost that game wasn't because of Mac Jones. That wasn't the reason at all. So Mac Jones is in a position to where the good thing is he's not going to lose He's not going to put the Patriots in the position to lose. The coaches aren't going to do that. But the bad thing is, is that he's not going to put you really in a position to win because the coaches, for the most part, are not going to do that. So there's a ceiling with the Patriots on offense this year to where if they're going to have to now go on the road and play at Arrowhead and play the Kansas City football team and go up against Patrick Mahomes or go on the road to Buffalo and play Josh Allen or compete against Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals at home, you know, there's there's going to be some situations. There's going to be somewhere during this playoff run for New England where, well, Mac Jones, and this applies also to Carson Wentz and the Indianapolis Colts if they get in. This applies to Jimmy Garoppolo and the San Francisco 49ers if they get in. There's going to come some point in the game where you're going to have to win it for us. And can Mac Jones in the fourth quarter with, eight minutes to go, be able to win a game. Either make the plays that will keep the opposition at bay in terms of getting the ball back and scoring, putting the ball in the end zone after a 13-play, 75-yard drive that took up seven or eight minutes, similar to what Josh Allen and the the, uh, Buffalo Bills did on Sunday at Foxborough. Is Mac Jones, does Mac Jones have the ability to do that in a playoff game on the road against an elite quarterback and against a team like the Kansas City football team, like the Cincinnati Bengals, like the Tennessee Titans, if they get Derrick Henry back, A.J. Brown has come back to play, or someone of that ilk, someone of that caliber. I just don't think, again, that the Patriots, and it's not all Mac Jones, he doesn't have a speed burner. He doesn't have a a go-to guy as far as the uh, wide receiver position is concerned for that team. He doesn't have somebody who can uh, break down the defense or stretch the defense because of the speed that they have on the outside. So there's a limitation, I think, for the offense for Indianapolis, which is, let's see, before um, the New England Patriots, which it's going to cause them ultimately not to reach uh, Super Bowl status, despite the fact that during the 
run that they had. What they win five, six, seven games in a row, some, some nonsense like that. That uh, Mac Jones was playing good football. He was playing really good football. The the only problem was he was never asked to win a football game for him. When you're going up against a division foe like the Buffalo Bills in a game, yes, weather played a role in the decision, but when you're only asked to throw three footballs, it kind of gives you the indication that, yeah, we're not ready to have Mac Jones be a prominent part of this offense just yet. You just do your job. Bill Belichick always says that. Do your job. Do your job. And for Mac Jones, at this point in his career, he's just a uh, game manager. And that's all right. That's fine. You're not going to be coming in and you're not, Mac Jones or no one else is going to be coming in and being like, okay, now you need to be like Dan Marino. Okay, now you need to go in there and you need to be like Patrick Mahomes in his third year. Okay, you need to come in there and have the same responsibility that Aaron Rodgers has after 13 years. I mean, that's not realistic. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be prudent. In fact, that would be downright stupid by the Patriots to uh, do such a funny, uh, such a silly and ridiculous thing. So, yeah, so that's just the way it is. Mac Jones has shown the ability to do his job very well this season for New England. But because his job is only not to lose football games or put their defense in uh, in, in, uh, positions of disadvantage, I don't think it gives New England the best chance to win. So moving forward, man, Kansas City still looks like the squad. Kansas City still looks like the team. Patrick Mahomes, there you go. Um, Derrick Henry coming back for Tennessee. All right, okay. I don't think Cincinnati's defense, speaking of don't think Cincinnati's defense, speaking of don't think someone's defense, right? Anybody talk about the uh, Kansas City football team? Oh, they've dummied down that defensive uh, playbook of theirs. And Patrick Mahomes now has finally figured out some of the answers to the test in terms of, okay, I got Travis Kelsey. I've got Tyreek Evans. I've got uh, McCole Hardiman, who's come on strong. I've got some boys out of the back, back who can catch some passes. I've got a, a good squad. And I can take what the defense give me, giving me what the defense is saying take. I'm taking, and we're still scoring, and we're still doing well, and we're giving the defense more opportunities to do their thing and shut down because now on defense, Kansas City might not be that big play offense that they were the past couple of years, but guess what? If you don't have yourself an awesome, strong defense, even if you do have an awesome, strong defense, you know what's the best thing for a defense? is the fact that, you know what? We can just sit here, relax, and we can have our offense on a consistent basis go down the field, take four or five or six minutes off the clock. We come in rip-roaring, ready to go. We get ourselves a three and out, or we get ourselves a five and out. They kick the ball back to the offense. Patrick and the boys lead the charge again down the field where they take four or five minutes off and pound defense. Already we're ahead 14 nothing. We're rested, we're ripped, we're roaring, and we're ready to go. That is the best thing that a defense can have, and that's exactly what the... Kansas City football team has more so than the young up-and-coming and very talented Cincinnati Bengals from an offensive standpoint. So moving forward in the AFC, it looks like it's Kansas City's squad. It looks like Kansas City's road to getting to the Super Bowl. But man, the way Buffalo and Josh Allen, they can continue just like Dak and Dallas. They can continue to play that they wait, the way they played on Sunday. The Bills all of a sudden go from teetering in and out of the playoff to teetering the other way of being conference, American football conference 
champions. Last segment of the podcast, last segment of the program, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us moving to the end of the year. Man, I'm going to, uh, tonight I'm going to uh, go across the country, see the fam, see my mom, see my beautiful, wonderful, awesome, fantastic, fabulous, magnificent goddaughter, Sydney Davis, the most beautiful and wonderful and awesome person under the age of 52 walking this earth. Sorry, y'all. That's the way it is. So going to visit my brother, going to visit my goddaughter. So I am just uh, feeling good. And the fact that I just got a text saying because of COVID, the returning flight back to Vegas is going to be delayed. So I might be spending New Year's Eve in Rockville, Maryland. I was supposed to be coming back on New Year's Eve, but the flight was going to be eight hours because I was going to go from Reagan to Newark. Newark six-hour flight all the way to uh, Vegas, which I wasn't looking for because, man, I cannot stand being in planes. I am scared to death of planes, especially now with COVID. Not so much of a fear that I don't take planes. I take planes, but the taking off and the landing scare the hell out of me. And being in that space for that long of a time just drives me nuts. That's why going to Australia as much as I want to, as much as I'm just dying to an 18-hour flight, would put me on the verge of being suicidal. So to be in a plane that long, five hours is about my limit. Four and a half, five hours is about my limit. After that, I start uh, I start getting really agitated and I start getting really nervous and I start getting a little squirmy and I just start kind of losing it a little bit. Inside, not outside to show it, but inside, my guts and everything are going crazy. So the thought of going from Newark to Vegas and spending almost six hours, six hours in the plane gave me nightmares, but uh, they're going to reroute me from Dulles, excuse me, they're going to reroute me from Reagan to uh, Chicago and then Chicago over to Vegas, so I'll see what happens. Might want to uh, go ahead and rebook, but we'll see what happens. Wendell's World in Sports, and that's what's going on in my life, bitches. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us very quickly. The National Championship game, Georgia versus Alabama, excuse me, Georgia's Know about that. Georgia Freudian slip. Georgia versus Michigan, Cincinnati versus Alabama. One of these games is going to be a blowout. If a game is going to be a blowout, if one of these semifinal games in college football is, 
going to be a blowout. I am going to be picking the Cincinnati Bearcats to lose to Alabama. As I mentioned before on another podcast, this is a extremely important game for uh, Cincinnati, not just for their football program, but also for non-Power 5 schools in general. This was a situation where Cincinnati was put in the Final Four because really there was no other choice. As soon as Oklahoma State fell inches short in their Big 12 championship game against Baylor, it was a situation where you had no other choice but to put Cincinnati in there. So there's a lot of people in college football with a lot of stroke, with a lot of power, with a lot of influence, with a lot of say-so who are hoping that Alabama whoops the shit out of Cincinnati so they can make the argument, see, this is the reason why a team from the non-Power 5 conference should never be a qualified, or this is the reason why we don't put the Cincinnatis and the Houstons and the SMUs and the Coastal Carolinas and the BYUs of the world, the Boise States in the world, in a college playoff football final four format like this because of what you saw, which happened. Now, sooner or later... They're going to go to a 12-team playoff, which is going to be much, much better uh, as of right now for the next couple of years. Cincinnati is going to be that is going to be that team. When you speak about a team, when you speak about a situation and being a black man in America, you read the history. If you're speaking about minorities, if you're speaking about those who are different than the status quo, it's always the first, it's always the most difficult, the one who's going to be facing the most trepidation, the one who's going to be facing the most obstacles, the one who's going to be facing the most um, uh, pushback from changes that need to happen. Whether we're speaking about women's issues, whether we're speaking about minority issues as far as blacks and Hispanics and gays and lesbians and same thing again with the gays and lesbians and the Asians and everything like that, it's always the first, always have it the hardest. Well, this is no different than I think Cincinnati, the first of the non-Power 5 schools, having a real opportunity to win a national championship. Because all they need to do is beat Alabama, then they need to beat the winner of the Georgia-Michigan contest. The problem is, of course, if they lose, and if they lose big, Cincinnati will be treated much differently than all of the rest of the Power 5 schools who have made it to the conference semifinals and have gotten beaten. I think they punched the Pac-12 a little bit from the two experiences that Washington and Oregon had representing that conference coming in. Oregon losing in the championship game to Auburn a few years ago or to Florida State. Was it Florida State or Auburn? One of those two. But there's a certain bias, I think, Washington going to the Final Four under Mike Peterson and getting shellacked by Alabama. But, you know, uh, a school like a Notre Dame, a school like uh, an Oklahoma, even a school like a Clemson who, or an Ohio State who have gotten their asses whooped in this format before, that's not going to hold any long-term lasting effects. Cincinnati goes out and they get dominated and they get beat. I bet you, I bet you it's going to be even harder until they expand to a 12-team playoff for another school from a non-Power 5 conference to make it into the championship game regardless of of what they did. It took two years losing only one game and everything falling in place correctly for Cincinnati to have this opportunity. If they get blown out, the last vestige of anything that a non-Power 5 school can do to get into the championship series or to the semifinals will be down the drain. So that's what that's what's at stake, in my opinion, for Cincinnati. That's the main storyline going into this championship game against Alabama, which... 
Alabama should win. They have one of the best players in the country in Bryce Young, even though John Mechie is out with an ACL tear. The wave of talent that Alabama has, the coaching of Nick Saban, the experience that Nick Saban has in getting his team ready for uh, these type of games and the layoff between these conference championship game and the semifinal game, I think it's going to uh, be a huge advantage for Alabama. And then when you're taking a look at Georgia and Michigan, two teams whose strengths are Michigan running the football and Georgia on defense, it's just going to be a matter of which line is going to be the I wouldn't say dominator because I don't think either team is going to be dominated along the offensive and defensive line, but who's going to have the advantage in terms of establishing the line of scrimmage. If that happens, it's a situation where, well, it's going to be a game where it's going to be, both teams are going to be working on, working on ball control. Stetson Bennett, the receiving core for Georgia is not known for its explosive plays. They're known for their defense and their running game. Same with, Michigan, it's going to be interesting to see Aiden uh, Hutchinson and the rest of the fellas on the offensive, on the defensive line for Michigan, how much they put pressure on uh, the offensive line, the running game, and make Stetson Bennett become a player who's going to have to be a decider, who's going to have to be a guy who's going to be making multiple plays to ensure that Georgia either takes the lead, stays in the league, stays in the lead, uh, coming down the stretch, second half, third and fourth quarter and such, so... That's my deal with the national championship game. Indiana, I think, is going to be Alabama and Michigan. And I think uh, Michigan has a solid, solid, solid chance to win because of their physicality as a football team in general along both the offensive and defensive lines. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Real quickly now, switching to the NBA. I mentioned before, 34 games in. Everybody... Not everybody. Damn, why do I always say everybody like a stupid motherfucker? A lot of people, when they were talking about the Lakers after they made the trade for Russell Westbrook in the offseason and all of the other acquisitions that they made, bringing in Kendrick Nunn, bringing in Malik Monk, bringing in Carmelo Anthony, picking up Avery Bradley after he was uh, cut on one of the final uh, cuts of the day, bringing in all of these new players. LeBron and those guys were like, it's going to take some time. The prognosticators, those who know what they're talking about, the Zach Lowe's and the Chris Maddox and the Howard Becks of the world and the and the um, uh, Brian Windhorses of the world were saying, look, man, it's going to take some time. You know, 10 games in is not going to be a true barometer of what the Lakers are going to be, what the Lakers are going to be about. Well, 34 games into the season or eight games away from the halfway mark, the Lakers right now are a slightly below average team. They're sitting at 16 and 18. And, and you can make all the excuses that you want to on the reasons why. LeBron being injured earlier in the season, AD in the in the process of missing now, what, three more weeks because of a spraining MCL in his knee. Wayne Ellington just started playing again. He was on the uh, injured list to uh, start the season. Kendrick Nunn hasn't played yet. Uh, Kent Bazemore is out for a little bit of time. Trevor Ariza missed a lot of the uh, portion of the season because of injury. You you can come up with all these excuses, and you can come up with because of COVID, uh, certain players missed games, and because of that, the continuity and the chemistry yet hasn't formed. You can make all of the excuses about the Lakers' ills and defects and reasons why they're 16-18 and 18 to start the season. But I'll tell you this. Number one, COVID has run rampant with Every team 
every team. It's not like the Lakers are the only team that has faced not just injuries, but also players in, players in um, COVID protocols to be missing game. Everybody. This is just going to be a way of life right now. You're going to see players like Joe Johnson and Lance Stevenson and Malik Beasley and all these guys. You're going to see guys, Greg Monroe from my favorite Georgetown University. You're going to see guys who have long gone since not been a, uh, have, have not been a desire for NBA teams to be playing on their squads, to be getting 10-day contracts and such. You're going to be seeing players from the G League. You're going to see players from all over the, all over the, uh, the, the league and such get opportunities who do not normally would not uh, get opportunities because of what COVID is going on. It's, it's the way it is, man. When you're waking up every day and, you know, the, the game that you might want to see in the NBA who prides itself on when you're promoting this game, it's not about the Brooklyn Nets playing the Los Angeles Lakers. It's not about the Phoenix Suns playing the Golden State Warriors. It's not about the um, New York Knicks playing the Chicago Bulls. It's about Julius Randle going up against Zach Levine. It's about Steph Curry going up against Chris Paul or Devin Booker. It's about when the Milwaukee Bucks play the Dallas Mavericks, it's about Giannis going up against Luka. When the New Orleans Pelicans play against the Dallas Mavericks, when Zion is playing, which he has it this year, the marquee should really read Zion versus Luka. KD versus LeBron. I mean, that's how they, that's how the NBA likes to promote. They like to promote their stars more than they do their teams. So on Christmas, as I mentioned before, when you had the two best teams playing, which is the Phoenix Suns and the Golden State Warriors, and you had them at the appetizer for the five o'clock game or the prime time game, which was the Lakers and the New and the Brooklyn Nets. Everybody was on the assumption before the season started when they put the schedule together that it would be Kevin Durant versus LeBron James. It wasn't Brooklyn versus the Los Angeles Lakers. Now the Lakers were supposed to be preeminent favorites in the Western Conference, and you have LeBron and AD and such. So it's not like the Lakers were picked to finish 14th in their conference. But still, the league likes to promote its superstars, hence the juicy, tasty matchup between LeBron and KD was too tantalizing to resist putting as the marquee game on one of their most important days of the season, Christmas. Meanwhile, Phoenix and Golden State clearly are the two best teams in the league. That's how the NBA operates. But getting back to the Lakers, you, you could talk about all of these things. LeBron, after that blowout against the San Antonio Spurs, where they were horrendous. The effort wasn't there. The passion wasn't there. The energy wasn't there. The, the attention to detail wasn't there. It was, it was a, a, an embarrassment to play like that against a young San Antonio Spurs. Spurs squad, who under my man Greg Popovich, you know they're going to come out and execute. You know they're going to come out and play hard. You know they're going to come ready to play. They might not always win. They might get their ass kicked. They might not, you know, be at the level of go, go, go that um, that they're going to be normally. But you, you know you're going to get some effort. You know you're going to get some attention to detail. You know you're going to get something in terms of execution and professionalism. That game against the Spurs, the Lakers showed none of that. Henceforth, they lost 138 to 110. After the game, LeBron's up there talking about, look, you know, we really are still trying to find ourselves because of the situation that has been put forth uh, to us, where you have our three best defensive players, Trevor Ariza, Avery Bradley, and Kent Bazemore, they're out. They're not playing. 
So I don't know if LeBron was trying to use that as the reason why that the Lakers gave up 138 points and allowed some rookie whose name I can't pronounce from Africa to shoot 11 for 11 and score almost 30 points against them. I, I, I don't know exactly what Kent Bazemore, Trevor Ariza, or Avery Bradley were going to do, but if those are your three guys that you're counting on to slow down the other team's offense or to, um, you know, put you guys back in at least being decent as far as an overall defensive team. If you're relying on Kent Bazemore, if you're relying on Avery Bradley, if you're relying on Trevor Ariza, how many minutes can those guys give you? Crunch time minutes, how many minutes can those guys give you? You're in, you're in some serious trouble. Look, the Lakers are who they are. They're stuck with who they are. The trade from Russell Westbrook made no sense. Now, this was the team they gave up Contavious Caldwell-Pope. They gave up uh, Montrez Harold. They gave up Kyle Kuzma to get themselves Russell Westbrook. So, henceforth, they gave up all of their depth. Their depth. So, in a season like this, where COVID hits, and of course, at the time, LeBron and Rob Polenka, who made the move to go ahead and get Russell Westbrook, I think LeBron more than anything, making the move to get Russell Westbrook, of course, you can't take into account the way COVID was going to savage the uh, season, season this year and put teams in such a predicament to where they're going to be calling players who have no business being NBA basketball players and being important uh, contributors to these teams. But man, anybody could have told you that bringing in Russell Westbrook to a team that couldn't shoot, that to a team that had poor transition defense, to a team where they were going to have a multitude of problems with that lineup as far as it blending and gelling together, it just doesn't work. It didn't make any sense. It never... It never made any sense. So we, we can speak about, hey, look, once AD comes back, well, Anthony Davis hasn't been playing gangbusters to begin with. Yeah, his numbers look good, but how has his impact been? Chris Webber used to pull up fantastic numbers when he was with the Golden State Warriors. But it was Henry Bibby, Paige Stojakovic, and Vlade Divac to carry the team home, especially Mike Bibby the empty calorie type of numbers that AD was putting up in terms of the overall impact that he had in the game was glaring, especially when LeBron wasn't playing. When LeBron wasn't playing, AD should have raised his game even more and some of those losses that the Lakers had, some of those performances that the Lakers had shouldn't have been that way. When you have, presumably, one of the 10 best players in the NBA in AD. That's before he got injured. That's before he had any type of malices in terms of the physical is concerned. So with the Lakers, I, I don't know exactly what you're going to do. You have an old squad. You have an unathletic squad. Are you looking for Kendrick Nunn to save today? Are you looking for Taylor Horton Tucker to uh, save today? There's no trade out there. For Los Angeles Lakers fans, I hate to say this, but there is no trade out there that's going to give you Damian Lillard. That's going to give you Bradley Beal. That's going to give you Ben Simmons. That's going to give you even somebody like, uh, oh, the kid from Brooklyn. Not Brooklyn. Uh, the guy from... Um, um, Oh, my goodness, from Detroit, whose name I forgot who had been in the rumor mill in terms of who the Lakers are interested in, whose name I forgot. And when 10 minutes after this podcast is over, I'm going to remember uh, Horace Grant's uh, uh, Jelani Grant. Oh, I forgot. Never mind. But you know, help help is not on the rescue to save the Lakers seasons or to cure, or to cure some of the biggest faux pas and negatives of this team. They're not athletic. They're old, and what trade can be made, what scenario can be made 
for the Lakers to forget winning the conference to even make it into the playoffs. Hey, I understand that, look, Denver is ravaged by injuries. I mean, we knew that Jamal Murray was going to miss most of the season because of the ACL injury he suffered late uh, last uh, season. But Michael Porter going down because of that back, especially after he signed that max contract extension, that's a bummer for the Denver Nuggets. We don't know about the Utah Jazz as far as the playoff team is concerned. Uh, the Memphis Grizzlies, they seem to be moving up. But, I mean, they're still a young team, which really doesn't have the experience. The, the, the West outside of three teams at the top, which is Golden State, Phoenix, and the Utah Jazz, there's a lot of question marks. So in a muddle of mediocrity, which is past those three teams, the Western Conference, sure, the Lakers could somehow, some way, if AD comes back and LeBron stays healthy and continues to play at the level that he's playing at, can reach, uh, you know, reach the playoffs and do some things. But you're, you're really going to try to tell me right now, and especially if Klay Thompson comes back and Klay Thompson is 60, 65% of what he was before the injuries, you're going to try to tell me that Golden State Warrior team is going to fall to the Lakers? Maybe if LeBron was five years younger, maybe if he was eight years younger, maybe if Westbrook was three years younger, maybe if Westbrook was seven years younger, maybe the Lakers would have a serious, serious chance to beat the Golden State Warriors under those conditions. But guess what? The LeBron that played for Miami, he's not walking through that door. The LeBron that played for Cleveland the first time, he's not walking through that door. The LeBron who played for Cleveland the second time, he's not walking through that door which means that he can't take shit and turn it into chicken salad. He can't take manure and have it smell like freshly cut roses. It doesn't happen. As I mentioned before, this had to be AD's team in terms of bringing them out of the mire and having them do something. And right now, injury or no injury, so far AD has not shown the ability to do that. If he does not show the ability to do that, who else do you turn to? 37-year-old LeBron James is going to be averaging, what, by the playoff time or by... The end of the season when every game matters, every regular season game matters, he's going to be playing, what, 37, 38 minutes a game and play all five positions during that time, point guard, point forward, and then point center? Is that going to be your answer? As I mentioned before, three, four, five, ten years ago, that's a great answer. That's a winning answer. That's a championship answer. That's the best answer you can give answer. But this current LeBron James, as good as he's been, as elite, has he been as top six or seven in the league as he's been that LeBron James can't carry the Kent Bazemores and the Russell Westbrooks and the Taylor Horton Tuckers and the Malik Monks and the Wayne Ellingtons and the Carmelo Anthony's across the finish line in a series against a team like the Golden State Warriors if the Warriors are relatively healthy i.e. Draymond and Steph Curry are playing well Nothing that the Lakers can do. Nothing that the Lakers can do if Phoenix is playing at a level to which they've been playing in so far this season and Chris Paul can maintain healthy status or not debilitating injury, which is going to seep a lot of the importance that he has and impact that he has on the court. It's not going to happen if you're a Laker fan. Sorry. And as I mentioned before, just because you're the Lakers and you're an historic franchise in a glamorous media market doesn't mean the league is going to help you out by saying, fuck it, let's just go ahead and give him uh, and give them a, a player that can really help them out. There's nobody on that team for the Lakers to trade that could give them a player that could get them at the same level as a team like the Golden State Warriors, the Utah Jazz, or the Phoenix Suns. Regardless, 
AD can come back and be the player that he once was. And maybe he can turn into the player, which I was hoping that he would be, if you're a Laker fan, which is to uh, take that torch in terms of being the most important, most valuable player on that team and have everybody else jump on his back and lead them to the promised land. But there's just too many pieces that don't fit. There's just too many things that that uh, are not there for the Lakers to get it done. All right, I'm out of here. I am good to go. I want to wish everybody a happy new year. I want to wish everybody a healthy new year. I want to wish everybody an opportunity to at least try to work on about 10% of the resolutions that you have made for 2022. And I hope all of them come true, no matter how small, how minimal they are, man. Let's see what we can do in 2022 about moving this world, moving this society in a better place through love, peace, unity, understanding, and respect for all who have a good heart, for all who have strong moral fiber, for those who are great people, regardless of regardless of race, creed, or color. Let's see if we can do that. So let's reach out and touch someone's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. Oh, shit, I can't. I can't do it justice, but I know one person who can do it justice. I know one legend who can do it justice. I know one diva who can do it justice, and I will let her give it justice. Wendell's World of Sports, happy, happy new year. Miss Ross, if you would, please. Music. Reach out and touch somebody's hand, make this world.